0: After last week's dark themes, it is a relief to look instead at one of Shakespeare's lightest, brightest and most ridiculous comedies. I knew about A Midsummer Night's Dream from Ballet Shoes, Noel Stretfield's brilliant book about three girls attending a stage school in 1930s London and beginning to make a living as teenagers from performing, covered in week eight of the podcast. The two older sisters, Pauline and Petrova, are cast as Peas Blossom and Mustard Seed, two of Titania's fairy attendants. There was a picture of them both in the Modern Dress production, and Petrova, the younger, makes a hash of her only line when she has to say, and I, in response to Titania's demand that her four attendants serve Nick Bottom, the weaver, and Titania's new love. Then there was preparation for going to see a live production. Fortuitously or not, depending on your taste, the BBC showed the 1930s black-and-white film of the play. This somewhat disconcertingly features James Cagney, better known as a gangster, playing bottom, with Mickey Rooney as Puck, and a woefully miscast Dick Powell, better known in his various roles as a gumshoe and a crooner, as Lysander. When my mum told me she had tickets, I was delighted to be seeing the play live. I was 10. I can pinpoint the production. David Conville directed the play at Regent's Park Open Air Theatre in both 1974 and 1975. But I am sure that we saw the 1974 production first of all because we sat in deck chairs and it was in 1975 that the Open Air Theatre became a fixed seat amphitheatre and second because i remember the late nicky henson as bottom i can't remember the set or costumes but i think they were traditional the first time i'd seen a classical shakespeare production it was jolly and zany and not for the first time my mother and i were two of the louder audience members when it came to laughter unfortunately my experience of the play was poisoned only a few years later First, my literature teacher, who had the gift of destroying any joy or pleasure to be extracted from a novel play or poem, chose A Midsummer Night's Dream for our O-level Shakespeare text – This meant going painful line by painful line through every last part of the text, except for skipping all the rubbish, salacious jokes about French crowns and wading through laborious and dull explanations of exactly who Theseus and Hippolyta might be. Second, that was the year our English department and drama department both decided it would be a marvellous idea to put on a production of the play. The school production, like so many in all girls' schools, where bosomy young women take on the part of blokes, was creaky, painfully slow, and only slightly enlivened by the set made up of many, many, many silver milk bottle tops stapled to streamers. We were also taken to see the second worst Shakespeare production I have ever attended. More on the worst when we get to Othello in this series. This production was a semi-professional one at the Horth in Crawley, where the only redeeming feature of the production was the error made by the director to use a live dog in the performance of Pyramus and Thisbe, that closes the play. A lanky young woman with big round glasses had been cast as Starveling, the tailor who depicts moonshine in the play within the play, bearing a lantern, a thorn bush, and a dog she came on stood on a rickety wooden stool and as she declaimed her brief part her live wiry jack russell type dog escaped her grasp and wound itself around and around her legs as she teetered on her stool otherwise the whole thing was a tedious business so it was a play i generally avoided somehow though the year after hamlet i found myself directing a production in beijing I'm not entirely sure how I had signed myself up for this. After the Hamlet experience, when our leading a man cracked his ankle mid-performance, for a full account, head back to episode 20 of 6060, I was still feeling somewhat traumatised and in addition acquired a baby in the months between Hamlet and the scheduled performances of A Midsummer Night's Dream on A Midsummer Night. For various complicated reasons, I left Beijing for the last third of my pregnancy and the birth, which took place in early April 1997. We scrambled to secure birth certificate, photos, passport and Chinese visa. So when Minion One was but a fortnight old, we terrorised our fellow club class passengers by occupying the seats equipped with a bassinet. The baby actually was silent throughout the flight only interrupted by the snoring of our neighbours who had been whinging about the existence of the baby in the first place. We had cast the play before my departure and most of the actors had been diligent about learning their parts in my absence, most of them, so we started rehearsals promptly. Fortuitously, as I mentioned, Midsummer Night actually fell on a Saturday and we were offered the garden of the British Ambassador's residence for our performance. It was a magical venue. I don't think the British Embassy eh, any longer owns it. It was sufficiently distant from ring roads for traffic to be unobtrusive. It had mature trees and a helpfully positioned veranda for the seating. It was the season in Beijing for regular downpours towards the end of the afternoon, but the sandy soil drained well, and there was a huge old carpet that the Embassy no longer needed, which we unrolled each night of the production to act as our stage. Unlike Hamlet, we did not import any actors. Set and costumes were 1920s in inspiration, with music from the Belle Epoque and the 1920s jazz scene in France. I had the help of a great choreographer for the scenes where the lovers are lost in the woods, and the more we rehearsed, the more I fell back in love with the play. Shakespeare's most famous comedies, Twelfth Night, Much Ado, As You Like It and Midsummer Night's Dream, are all heavily influenced by Roman playwrights and above all of its metamorphosis. They are full of mistaken identity, cross-dressing, disguise, pranks and eavesdropping which leads to confusion of one sort or another. The marriages at the end are always a sign that the merriment and the fun are done, that we are returning to order and acceptance of social expectations. And with that formality, there is also a tinge of melancholy That awareness that Shakespeare captures in a song performed in Cymbeline, neither comedy nor tragedy, written fifteen or more years after A Midsummer Night's Dream. Shakespeare reminds us that we need, Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, home art gone, and ten thy wages. Golden lads and lasses, all must as chimney-sweepers come to dust. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, we see this in each of the three layers of the play, the aristocratic world of Theseus, Hippolyta and their court, where Theseus has, in quotes, won Hippolyta's hand as part of a peace settlement between his Athenian warriors and her Amazonian troops. The excitable world of the hoary mechanicals, the working men of Athens, whose dream is to attract Theseus's attention— and money, and the conflicted world of the fairies where the true consequences of the war between Oberon and his fairy queen Titania are deep and dark. Although this play can be played purely for laughs, innocently, without highlighting the subtext, for me, particularly since directing the play, the subtext has become more and more powerful. First, there is the conflicted relationship between Hippolyta and Theseus. Hippolyta has very few lines, 31 according to some sources, and yet her presence, her influence, are strong. She seems happy enough to postpone the four days of waiting until the marriage. Her verdict on the performance of Pyramus and Thisbe is succinct and difficult to refute. This is the silliest stuff I ever saw. But she is the one who sees that the tangles and confusions of the lovers... Suggest that they have gone further than fancy's images, and that something strong, something strange and admirable will underpin the relationships between Helena and Demetrius, between Hermia and Lysander. The great conflict between Oberon and Titania, apparently over the affections of a little Indian boy, seems both driven by and resulting from far more elemental powerful forces titania loved the girl's the boy's mother wants him to be part of her troop gathering honey and gossamer webs singing and dancing on the waves margin whilst oberon wants the child for his page to serve as a squire it is in some ways a classic quarrel titania wants to keep the beloved child in a feminine orbit Keep him as young as possible for as long as possible, where Oberon wants to train him as a knight to trace the forests wild, to take the child to proper boyhood and eventually manhood. There is no right answer. And worse, their argument has had a devastating impact on the natural world, causing contagious fogs, rivers which have overborne their banks, rotting corn in the fields also occupied only by crows feasting on the corpses of drowned livestock. The seasons have overlapped and interwoven, causing disease and late frosts to blight blossom and a crimson rose.' It's one of those moments where Shakespeare suddenly seems so relevant, so apposite, it captures the unpredictability of the weather and although technically Oberon and Titania are fairies, they are all too human and aware that it is their quarrel that has led to this evolving disaster. And by the way, it jolly well was Shakespeare, not the Earl of Oxford or Francis Bacon, not Marlowe or the Earl of Southampton, whatever the conspiracists might suggest. And for me, it is A Midsummer Night's Dream that proves this unequivocally. Following Titania's depiction of environmental catastrophe, Oberon watches her leave the stage with his henchman, Puck, also known as Robin Goodfellow, Hobgoblin. Then the pair witness the arrival of Demetrius behaving churlishly to Helena. And once the humans have left the stage, he turns to Puck, and gives the most convincing description of a Warwickshire bower, the bank where the wild thyme blows, where ox lips and the nodding violet grows, quite over-canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk rose, and with eglantine. The wood in a Midsummer Night's Dream, the forest of Arden in As You Like It, these are Warwickshire woods, Warwickshire forests, warwickshire countryside brought to life on the stage of the wood know that was the rose the globe shakespeare's connection to his country and his county is solid real authentic these are not whimsical pastoral greenswards occupied by mincing lords and ladies but feral dangerous tough places where all certainty is stripped away and the inconceivable becomes reality A Midsummer Night's Dream is probably the best-known repository of evidence that Shakespeare was exactly who he claimed to be. An astounding playwright in the English language, the most perceptive delineator of human frailty and strength, a man from a middle-class background with a grammar school education that took in Plutarch and Ovid, who came to London with little and returned to Stratford, like Bottom and his crew, a made man. Next week, join me for another comic tour de force, the novels of E.F. Benson and the world of Map and Lucia.